We're continuing our study as we're working through the covenants. These covenants, as we have seen, are pointing to Jesus. This coming of Christ, this advent of Christ that celebrated during Christmas. Simeon and Anna, who were there in the first century, they were there in Jerusalem. And they were waiting, as we find, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the Christ to come. Waiting for this advent to happen. That advent, that coming, is just a foretaste. It's a foretaste of a future coming. It's a, it's a glimpse and a reminder that what started when Jesus came in his first coming will be completed and fulfilled when he comes in his second advent. You and I, in this church age, are waiting for that coming. Is your heart waiting? Are you waiting and hastening the day of Christ's coming as Peter encourages the church in 2 Peter? Are you praying your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Are you anticipating that future day? We take another step this morning as we're reminding ourselves of these promises. Promises to Adam and then to Noah and then to Abraham and this morning, his promise to Moses. Now, I, I want to just, confession time. I thought the, the Mosaic Covenant was really easy. I thought it was really straightforward. I thought the Mosaic Covenant was just another way for us to, to look to Christ, and, and it does. But I want to just welcome you into the tension just for a moment by asking some of the questions that I ask myself. What does the Mosaic Covenant add? What is the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant? Okay, so, so, so God showed up to Abraham. God promised Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you all the nations will be blessed. It is dependent upon God. God is the one who's going to carry this promise through. It, it, it involves a nation. It involves a seed. It involves God's blessing. Blessing will come. It's dependent upon God and God alone. Right? So then what, what does the Mosaic Covenant do? Why is the Mosaic Covenant conditional? And as we're going to look at this morning, the Mosaic Covenant, where God says, if you indeed will obey my voice, then I will make you a kingdom of priests. I will make you a treasured possession. I will make you a holy nation. Time out. Whoa. Hang on. Wait a second. Are you telling me that everything that was promised to Abraham, everything that was dependent upon God, and, and everything that was carried by faith, remember, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The faith of Abraham was the righteousness that was required. And now all of a sudden, all of these benefits, all of these rewards that God is promising Moses are conditioned upon obedience. What in the world is happening? That blew me away this week and last week as I'm walking through. What is happening here? 
What is, what, what is taking place? There, there seems like there's this conflict taking place. How do I resolve this in my mind? How, how does this consistent with scripture? How, how does the Mosaic covenant do anything to build upon what we find in the Abrahamic covenant without erasing it completely? Oh, this is so important. Here's a summary statement. This is the message in a sentence, okay? If you don't take anything away, take this. I think I have this now in the slides. The Mosaic Covenant is not about having perfect faith, but about having faith in a perfect son. The Mosaic Covenant is not about having perfect faith. It's about having faith in a perfect son. And as we know from the Abrahamic covenant, we know that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But what did he believe? And by the way, we know that Abraham's faith was not consistent. We know that Abraham's faith was not everything it was supposed to be. So what did Abraham have to believe? And how did that faith, how did that faith lead him to, be, to enjoy the benefits of the promise? What we're going to talk about this morning is the difference between a relationship, the relationship that was resident in Abrahamic covenant that's different from the reward that we find in the Mosaic covenant. Let me try to illustrate just for a moment. I, I was just watching this past week a game show from UK, in the UK. There, there were four teams that had uh, couples. So, uh, I think a husband and a wife were part of this, of this team, and there were four of these kinds of teams. Uh, one of the couples, I, usually I think it was the, the husband, yeah, it was the husband of all of these teams, was blindfolded on, on one side, and the wife was on the other side, and she was able to see. She had a microphone, he had a headset inside his, he was uh, dressed up in... In a, in a uniform, uh, blindfolded, had a headset. He could hear, but he couldn't see. Separating the two was a maze. A, a maze that she could see, but he could not. And it wasn't a difficult maze. It was more or less just a, a jagged straight line, okay? But, but what made this really difficult was the maze was blocked off by an electric fence. So every time the person would run into the electric fence. The twist was he wouldn't get stung or zapped. His spouse would get zapped. You can imagine this was a recipe for disaster. <laughs> it was quite entertaining. The point is that there, was, there, was, there were boundaries that were set. There was a standard that they needed to follow. They, didn't, they couldn't see the standard, very much like what we find in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Several weeks ago when we were talking about the, the results of Adam and the covenant made to Adam, we, we, we saw this. Therefore, just as sin came into the, into the world through one man, that man was Adam, and death reigned through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because of Adam's sin, all of his offspring, all of his descendants inherited his, not, not just his physical attributes, but also his spiritual ones. They sinned because of a sin nature they inherited from Adam. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You see, even though they didn't have the law, those living from the time of Adam to the time of Moses to the time of this covenant, this law that we're going to look at this morning, there was sin that was reigning. And unlike Adam, they didn't have the specific, explicit command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't have that command, but they were still sinning. They were still rebelling against God, even though they didn't have the clear directions, the guidelines. And because they were running into the fence, as it were, they were subject to discipline and condemnation and judgment of God because they kept running into the rails, kept running into that electric fence. They couldn't see it, but they were still, they were still uh, inheriting the condemnation, the judgment based upon their sin. God had given promises to Abraham. And although sin still reigned from Adam to Moses, God was still willing to engage his people his men, Noah and Abraham, and make specific problem, uh, promises to them, inviting them into relationship. We saw the promise that God gave to Abraham, the promise to make him a great nation. And, and, God, and God promised to, to make this, this nation uh, multiply as the stars of the sky. We turn now to Exodus chapter 1. So we begin this story of, of how now God is going to work out this Mosaic covenant. And we begin to see that God is faithful to keep his promises. By the way, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. If you're using the Pew Bible, I think it's on page 45. We're coming to Exodus chapter 1. We find that these people who were living in exile in Egypt we find something to be true about them in Exodus 1.7. It says, But the people of Israel were fruitful in increasing greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. God was faithful to Abraham to keep his promise. God was faithful to multiply the people even though they, they were now living in the land of Egypt. God had also promised Abraham that they would be sojourners in a land that was not their own. We find that as we, as we move to Genesis chapter 15. We see in verse 13 to 15 or 14, it says this. The Lord says to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The clock has been ticking. The time of Exodus is now the time of fulfillment. 400 years have ticked by, and now God was going to be faithful to deliver his people as he promised to do 645 years before to Abraham. God was going to be faithful to his promise, and he was going to show his people that who he was to lead them to faith. As far as we know, these 400 years were, a year, were years of silence, there were years where, where God had not given them a prophet, and now God was going to invite them into relationship again, like he had with Abraham, and as a nation in total, he wanted to invite them into relationship, but it was only going to happen one way, right? Abraham believed God, 
and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And God was going to invite his people to see who he was so they could believe in him. So it wasn't about having perfect faith. It was about believing and having faith in a perfect son. We're going to see that as we step into this story. First, we're going to see that God is making his character known as the God who saves. He is the God who saves. And he does this in a number of ways. Firstly, as we look at Exodus chapter 1, we see that God is one who saves by, by raising up a deliverer. God will raise up a deliverer. He will deliver his people according to his promise, as he has said, and he will do it in his way through his power. We could look at the story of God raising up Moses through the, the, the narrative of Exodus chapter 1 through 3, but the, a, a good summary is found for us in Hebrews chapter 11. It says this, by faith, Moses, and I want to just call attention to this, these words of faith. God will help to encourage and welcome faith in his people by helping to provide them a leader who will lead them in faith. So here we go. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reward was not in all the provisions of Egypt. It wasn't in the power. It wasn't in all the, the privileges of that place. The reward was Christ, and Moses was able to see by faith who Christ was and to believe. And God was going to use Moses as a, as a beacon of faith for his people to introduce them to himself and introduce them to faith. Faith would be the key to rescue for Moses, for his family, and for all those who would follow him in faith to leave, to leave Egypt. But in order to lead the people in faith, God needed to demonstrate his power. So God shows up in, his, in supreme power over the gods of Egypt. God will raise up a deliverer, but, but God will show himself to be a God who is supreme over all powers so they can believe him. And you know the story. Or you've watched the movie. You know that Moses is in Midian when God shows up to him in a burning bush and God calls Moses to go back to Egypt and to deliver a word, a word to Pharaoh, let my people go. And God will demonstrate his power over all of the deities in Egypt through 10 plagues. These plagues are by design. They're not random. God has selected these plagues specifically so that he can demonstrate his power over the gods of Egypt. If you have the, the handout, you can see as we walk down through this list, I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but you can see that, that systematically, one after the other, God says, I am the Lord. I am the living God. I am supreme over all. He does this by turning the Nile into blood. 
this life source for the people of Egypt, coming against Apis, who was the god of the Nile, coming against Num, who was the guardian of the Nile. And all the fish and all the living things within the Nile died because God had turned the Nile to blood. God said, I am supreme. I am Lord over all. Second, God brings a plague of frogs. Herket, the frog goddess or the, the, the goddess of birth who, who resembled a frog god, shows up to demonstrate, I am Lord over frogs. I am Lord over birth. Third, God brings a plague of gnats from the dust of the earth. And Set, who is the god of the desert or the god of dust, God converts the dust of Egypt into gnats and these swarms of gnats, of gnats swarm around all of Egypt. God says, I, I'm supreme over the dust. I can use it how I wish. Fourth, God brings flies. Uetkit, uh, the, the fly god, Swarms of flies bombard Egypt, but God is able not only to bring this plague onto Egypt, but he's able in the same way to preserve his own people from these swarms. To say, I am the one who is able to, to bring the flies and to preserve my people from these plagues. Fifth, God brings a plague on the livestock. We find that horses and donkeys and camels and herds and flocks are all killed by the Lord. The livestock all die through this plague, but God spares the livestock of the people of Israel. Hathor, who is the goddess, and Apis as the god depicted in cattle, God says, I am Lord over the cattle. I am Lord over these other gods, these foreign gods. Sixth, God would bring a plague of boils. Sekhmet and Sunni and Isis, who are gods of health and disease, God will say, I am the God of all. I am the God who brings health. I am the God who brings disease. I will demonstrate my power. I am Lord over all. Sixth or seventh, God would bring hail. Nut, who is the sky goddess. Osiris, who is the god of fertility. And Set, who is the storm god. God will establish himself as superior over these foreign deities. And in the midst of this, he will confirm to his people in Exodus chapter 9, 14, why am I doing this? I am doing this so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. In Exodus 9, 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The eighth plague that God brought was a plague of locusts. He would eat, they would eat up all of the crops that were not destroyed by the hail. Again, an assault against Nut and Osiris and Set to put them in their place and to establish himself as the God over all. Ninth, God would, God would bring a plague of darkness. Ra, who was the supreme God over Egypt, God would demonstrate that he was the giver of light and the, and the giver of darkness. And he would establish himself to be Lord over all. And finally, God would bring a plague of death. Isis, who was the protector of children, all of the firstborn sons would die. And those in Israel, if they wanted to be preserved from this plague, they needed to respond in faith to God through a Passover, through a Passover lamb, through a sacrifice through blood that was painted on the doorpost so that the angel of death could come over 
and pass over their home and not bring death upon that home. And so all who enjoyed the benefits of obedience in faith in God were preserved from this plague. But only those who believed, only those who obeyed, would enjoy that preservation. God would bring salvation through a Passover, through establishing himself as the God overall. And God would sustain his people by his presence. He would sustain them by his presence. In chapters 14 to 18, we follow the story. He leads them through the Red Sea. He shines his presence before them. They have this continual evidence of the presence of God in the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night to say, I am here, I am God, I am with you. He would protect them and preserve them. He would lead them into the wilderness, a wilderness that was known for its barrenness. No water, no bread, no vegetation by which they could support themselves. Nothing to sustain life. And the point was again to draw their attention to faith in God as the only way by which they could be preserved. Nothing to sustain life except by trusting in God alone. God would provide water from a rock. God would make the bitter waters sweet. God would provide manna and bread from the sky. God would provide for them and establish himself as the only one who saves. God is going to show them that he is the God who saves. And as we move into Exodus chapter 19, we begin to see the beginnings of, of why this covenant is in place. God is not only the God who saves and draws us into relationship, God is the God who sanctifies, who sets apart. That's what sanctification is all about, to set apart, to make distinct, to call them out, to make them a separate people. God will sanctify his people as we see in Exodus chapter 19. And he sanctifies his people through a number of ways. First, he sanctifies the people through their circumstances. In chapter 19, verse 1, if you turn in your Bibles to page 60 in the Pew Bible, you, be, you can begin to follow along. Now we're going to begin to, to settle into this passage for the next few moments and, and dr to draw out from this passage what we see about God's sanctifying work of his people. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, talks about the sanctifying work of God that happens through the circumstances. Notice, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. This gives you a sketch of their wanderings from Egypt uh, across the Red Sea and through the Sinai Peninsula and over to the right, lower right-hand corner, which, which is where the, the wilderness of Sinai was. Why the wilderness of Sinai? Why did God lead them to this barren place? It was by design. Because the pathway for relationship would begin with faith in God. And God would establish himself to be the only one they, they could trust. He would 
pull away all of the good things, all of the good gifts from them. So they only had one decision, and that was to trust God, to believe God, so then they could enter into this covenant relationship with God and enjoy the blessings that he would have to give to them. Three months would go by of wandering through this wilderness. Three months of testing we find in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, the, the very reason why God brought them to this place. He says this, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. God brought them to a place of desperation. God brought them to a place where the only option they had was to trust in God. He brought them to a place that brought them fear and trembling. The Sinai Peninsula was, the, uh, was devoid of water and vegetation, except oases and wadis, which are essentially dry riverbeds that fill up when the floods come. The wilderness was inhospitable, in the Hebrew language, it was considered a desolate place, a place which refers to the beyond, beyond civilization, beyond the known, out into the wilderness. Most people perceive the wilderness to be a dangerous place. And that's where God leads them to test them, to draw them into relationship, to reestablish his goodness to them. He was going to lead them in faith, set them apart, and humble them. He also sanctifies them by calling them to himself. That's what we find next in our passage in verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God was reestablishing a covenant. He was reestablishing his relationship with them, but now it had conditions. The conditions of reward that would come as a result of faith. What, what kind of faith? God brought these people to himself. And God was going to call them to something specific. It says in verse 5, if you will indeed obey. And, and really the word is, if you will hear, hear. There are two words that are side by side, which call attention to the nature of this promise, the nature of this condition, the significance of hearing and obeying God. One right after the other. Hear and obey. They were also to keep. This word to guard, to observe, to obey. God is emphatic. If you want to experience the blessings of all that I have promised to you, it's dependent upon your obedience. So listen carefully. What are those benefits we find? You will be a treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. Notice what it does not say. 
Notice God is not saying, you will be my people. Because through the Abrahamic covenant, they were already his people. Through the Abrahamic covenant, they had already believed. They had believed in Egypt before they were able to leave because they believed by moving through the Passover sacrifice and calling attention to the work of Christ, this future lamb who would redeem them, who would atone for their sins. They didn't know what that all meant, but in their believing, now they're enjoying or hearing the potential benefits, the potential rewards of obedience to God. These promises are meant to set them apart. They're meant to sanctify them and make them a new people, representatives of God. If they were going to represent God, they needed to look like God. So God also sanctifies them by communicating his standard. How were they to look like God? How were they to press into faith? What sort of believing did they need to have? As we begin to move through the the covenant that God makes with his people, we find in verse 7 and 8, so Moses comes down to the people, he calls the elders of the people, and, and set before them all these words that the Lord commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the conditions that he has set, all the standards of faith that he has put forward, all the requirements of the law we will submit to, we will demonstrate our faith in God, just like Abraham, who believed God and it was accounted to him to righteousness. Now God is beginning to clarify what that faith needs to look like. And it was a comprehensive kind of faith. It was a comprehensive obedience to this law. The commands would involve the totality of life, their worship, who they could marry, how they could dress, what they could eat, how they would cut their hair, how they would shave their beards, how they were to handle illness, how they were to deal with mold in their house, when they could work, when they could, uh, where they could live, how much of their fields they could harvest, how they could raise their family, how they were to deal with foreign nations, how they were to handle sin in their midst, how they were to relate to foreigners, how they were to care for widows and to treat the poor when they were allowed to travel, how they were supposed to do business, when they were allowed to be intimate with their spouse, what would happen if they touched a dead animal, and how they were to bury their loved ones and how they were to deal with bodily discharges. All of the basic parts of life were covered by the law. It involved the totality of life. It was comprehensive because faith in God should govern the totality of our existence. The holiness of God is not compartmentalized or segmented into just a section of who you are. It is meant to permeate every part of you. And so the law that was given in calling them to faith was a faith that dictated how that would work out in every part of their life. Of course, the people and their obedience was short-lived. And so God would sanctify his people again through discipline and forgiveness. He would build into a law a way to bring them back. 
He would build into the law a way to look to God for forgiveness and cleansing and atonement for sins, a way to restore them back to relationship. Yet they refused to wait on God, and God would allow forgiveness to happen through this law that he designed. We see that God makes a way for restoration. He makes a way for restoration through the tabernacle, where his presence would be located in a, in a way that they could see right in their midst. They could enjoy the continuing presence of God through the tabernacle, through also the, the priests that God would set up over his people, through the sacrifices that they would make, through the, the laws that would be read in their presence, through a, a way to atone for their sins, a way to be restored back into relationship with God. What was the point of all of this? The point of all of this was to help them see the limitations of their obedience, the limitations of their faith. The purpose of the covenant was to draw them not to perfect faith, but faith in a perfect son. It was to drive them to faith in God, who alone could cover their sins. The point was not to create a list of duties. The point was to help them check their hearts and to continue to call them to God as they saw the faith of Abraham who believed God and it was accounted to him for, for righteousness. They needed to see how inadequate their own faith was and what the standard of faith would be in a future perfect representative who would be faithful to these commands as only he could be faithful. Finally, God would sanctify his people through his son. He would sanctify his people through his son. His son who would be the picture of this, this perfect representative of faith. And we see that Jesus is better. He's better in all of these ways that we have just talked about. Jesus is the better Moses, as we find throughout the narrative of Acts. Acts chapter 3, verses 22 to 23. Peter is speaking in Jerusalem. He's speaking in the temple. He's addressing his, uh, his fellow uh, Jews by saying this. Moses says... The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. God will raise up for himself a better Moses, a better prophet, a better mediator, a better representative, a better way, a better truth. Jesus will be the better leader. And following Jesus will be the only way to be delivered from bondage, not bondage from Egypt, but bondage from sin. Jesus is better than Moses. There's a comparison that the writer to Hebrews uh, begins to paint in Hebrews chapter three. We don't have time to, to go there, but I just wanna to, to encourage you to read that. As great as a leader that Moses was, Moses was a complete and utter failure. Because everyone that followed Moses out of Egypt, who was 20 years old and above, died in the wilderness except for two. 
Moses was a complete failure as a human leader. But Jesus is a better leader in that Jesus will lead every person to himself. He will preserve. He will lead. He will keep them as we have talked about in many of our sermons before. Jesus is the better Moses. We also find that Jesus is the perfect lawgiver. From Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus, in his first public address, this Sermon on the Mount will say this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless or until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is the better lawkeeper. Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only one who fulfilled that perfect standard of righteousness. And by the way, Jesus in fulfilling that perfect standard of righteousness does not take that standard away, but actually raises the bar and through the power of his spirit allows us to walk in his steps. Jesus will say in the next verse, he says in verse 19, therefore, whoever whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, what you'll find is that Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he raises the bar. And he's able to raise the bar because he's already walked through, he's already met the requirement, and he gives us the ability to walk in his steps through the power of his Holy Spirit. And we don't do it consistently, we don't do it faithfully, but he allows us to be holy, as we find in 1 Peter, be holy, for I am holy. That is a real command given to real followers of God, so we can enjoy the real benefits of the promise. The promise that God gave to his people. We also see that Jesus is making a better temple. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, we, we get a glimpse of this temple. A temple that, has God, that God is building with stones. He himself being the chief cornerstone. He says, As you have come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. By the way, does that sound familiar? <laughs> you will be a kingdom of priests. For it stands in the scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We enter into this temple through faith. And we enjoy the benefits of perfect righteousness from Christ, who also calls us to righteousness, and we become a priesthood. We become a temple. We become those who are able to offer up sacrifices to God. That becomes our new mission. It was always the mission of God's people to welcome others into worship, to be a conduit for others to enjoy the same benefits of that relationship. And God does that by making a better temple. Finally, Jesus is the better high priest. He is the better high priest. As we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus, as the perfect one, is able to represent us to a perfect God. Finally, Jesus is the perfect lamb. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, and by, the, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The work is finished. It's been accomplished in Christ. He's fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant so we can enjoy the benefits of his perfect faith that he calls us into, not having a perfect faith, but believing in a perfect son. So for those of us this morning who enjoy the benefits of that relationship with God, we find from 1 Peter chapter, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, what is our mission? It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And as those who have received the mercy of God through the perfection of Jesus Christ, the mission that we have as God's people is to invite others. As priests, we invite others to enjoy the benefits of that relationship that comes only through faith in Christ and the finished work of his son, Jesus. Oh God, we praise you for the benefits of what you've accomplished for us on the cross. Thank you for this model of perfect faith in your son, Jesus. And thank you that we can simply believe and enjoy the benefits of that promise, that reward. The reward not only of relationship with you, but a reward of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and a future inheritance with you in heaven. Really, you're the prize. You're the ultimate. And so we wait for you, Lord. We look to you. And so may the expression of our life today, God, may we demonstrate to a watching world that what matters most to us are not the good gifts that you give to us, however good they may be, but what matters most to us is the prize of this relationship that we enjoy with your son, Jesus, through faith. And God, if there's anyone this morning who does not know you as their Savior in these moments, Lord, draw them to yourself. May they give their heart to you. May they confess their sin and believe that you are the only way to heaven. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you as you go.